Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is on the air. Never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is a call to arms for those American patriots who, in the tradition of our founding fathers, will stand up now to defend the Constitution and the liberties that it guarantees to each citizen, to each of us. That is our mission, to explain in a clear and concise manner the direct effect of each issue on the individual, on you personally not some anonymous being in a distant place, and to define in no uncertain terms the consequences of inaction. Let the battle begin. This is Dr. Dan. The framers of our Constitution understood and feared democracy. Historically, majority rule has always resulted in oppression of the minority, usually with lethal results. In our Constitution, each part of the federal government had a separate constituency, providing a power balance to prevent the dictatorship of any one single branch. The House of Representatives was designed to be the voice of the people, in which the whims and passions of the majority decided the outcome of each vote. The Senate was intended to be the voice of the states, and the leaders of the executive branch were to be chosen by the Electoral College, directly or indirectly. An unbiased and non-political judiciary, including the Supreme Court, had specific jurisdictions with decisions that were based on the law as written in the Constitution to uphold our natural law rights. The United States is not a democracy. And as I tell people, you should have learned this in civics class, if they even have civics class anymore. Democracy is mob rule, where 51% of the people control everything. The majority, even by one vote, makes all the rules for everyone. Freedom of choice and individual freedom are gone. The United States is a constitutional republic in which the natural law rights of the minority, even a minority of one single person, are protected by the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, no matter what the majority wants. So I tell people, stop using the phrase, our democracy. When someone says that, I want to go up to them and use a timeout sign and say, stop using our democracy, we don't have one, because only a constitutional republic guarantees individual freedom. One thing that's important to note is that collectivism cannot coexist with individual rights. For the past 100 years, the American progressive movement has worked diligently to create a single majoritarian constituency for the entire federal government in order to undermine the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. Their playbook was never a secret. In 1958, Cleon Skousen's book, The Naked Communists, exposed their 45 goals to overthrow the American system, eliminate private property, and steal our individual freedom. Saul Alinsky's Rules for Radicals in 1971 was a simple textbook that taught 
amateur community organizers how to initiate and operate programs for local societal change. It was there for everyone to see. They were the insurgents, and we did little or nothing to stop them. Now we have to become the insurgents ourselves to beat them at their own game and prevent the total destruction of our constitutional republic. Our guest on Freedom Forum Radio is Dr. Richard Ron, an American economist, syndicated columnist, and entrepreneur. He is the chairman of Improbable Success Productions and the Institute for Global Economic Growth. Dr. Ron writes a syndicated weekly column, which is published in the Washington Times, Real Clear Markets, and elsewhere. So after our commercial break, we will return with Dr. Ron to discuss his recent article, Democrats' Unrestrained Majority Democracy is Disastrous Unsustainable. We are back with Dr. Richard Ron, and thank you for being a guest on Freedom Forum Radio. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you, Dr. Ron. On April 25th, you published an, an article in the Washington Times that spoke eloquently to this topic. As I mentioned, the article was entitled, Democrats' Unrestrained Majority Democracy is Disastrous and Unsustainable. Talk to us about unrestrained majority democracy. What is it? How did it happen? And the risk it poses to our constitutional republic. Well, people go around talking about how they want a democracy, but they forget the goal of government is really the protection of person and property and individual liberty. That's what government's all about. It's not democracy. Democracy was just one of those tools to hopefully bring about protection of person and property and individual liberty. Uh, but democracy by itself can be abused. Um, the Greeks experimented with direct democracy back in 2,500 years ago. Didn't work. Uh, again, you had the tyranny of the majority and uh, it soon collapsed. Uh, the Romans actually created much, something much closer to what our founding fathers had, and that was a republic. It was an indirect democracy. Uh, the voting franchise was limited, and the Roman Republic lasted for uh, almost 800 years. It was remarkable in its duration. And then after that, of course, was the Roman Empire, and also it collapsed, as we all know. Um, it's interesting to see countries around the world who try to set up democracies, direct democracies, and what happens. Um, I always thought England was a very interesting example because the English government sort of evolved. There was no architect for the English and uh, the way they govern themselves. There was no, there's no written constitution. And what it was, was a monarchy that slowly devolved power first to the lesser nobility and then to uh, sort of the uh, wealthier and merchant classes and eventually the entire population. But they had constraints on it. And um, there are certain things in England you can't do, 
part of it's by tradition. And in theory, the queen could veto things. In reality, she never does, or she wouldn't be queen very long. But the uh, English kin kings and queens had lost virtually all their power by the early 1800s. Uh, but still, because they have the House of Lords, which did serve as a restraining factor, and that had been weakened over the years, and now they only have the parliament, and you see a lot of abuses take place there. Uh, but England is sustained, I think, more through the tradition and culture that people basically understand um, there are certain things you cannot do, and so they don't do it. Uh, our founding fathers understood all the problems of direct democracy and realized that if you had simple majoritarian votes, things like freedom of speech wouldn't last very long. We're just going through an episode now of uh, certain people want to regulate other people's speech. And our founding fathers realized if you regulate speech, pretty soon everything else is gone. And that's why we have, of course, the First Amendment, the Constitution includes freedom of religion, freedom of assembly. The Second Amendment, freedom uh, to own and bear arms, which is the way of enforcing the First Amendment. Well, again, I mean, what, you're, what we're talking about here is that we do have a constitutional republic. And we're really, truly, we are so fortunate and blessed that at, when they were having the ratification conventions, that the people understood that the natural law rights had to be written down. They weren't in the original constitution, but the Bill of Rights really is our natural law rights, divine rights that we get by the end of our birth. Uh, and they insisted uh, that those be written down and be part of the constitution. Can you imagine what things would be like if we were, those rights were just assumed rather than written down? Yeah. And we have to thank George Mason largely for that. He refused to sign the Constitution because it did not have the Bill of Rights. And of course, by the time the states adopted it, the Bill of Rights was already included as the first 10, ten amendments to the Constitution. Well, we've certainly seen plenty of abuses of the Bill of Rights uh, in an increasing fashion. And we're living today, um, the COVID the COVID issues are something that I'm really, um, as a physician, of course, uh, concerned about because what's going on when the government takes takes control of a medical issue, it invariably does something that is based on a political agenda rather than medical fact. So how do you see this as uh, in relation to freedom of speech, assembly, uh, and all that other stuff? How do you see the, what's happened with COVID as part of this problem? Uh, COVID is interesting because the government just assumed they had power that's not explicitly shown anyplace. <clears throat> and um, I mean, you had this Centers for Disease Control, CDC, coming up and saying, well, we all have to be masked or have social distancing or what all. I think people were cowed at first about all this, uh, but there was no there was no basis in law or in the Constitution for doing any of this. And finally, at my in my judgment, way too late, 
people are saying, hey, wait a minute. Um, this is this is not what we expected, nor did the government have the right to do it. As you may recall, when they first announced the restrictions, it was only going to be for two weeks. And two weeks quickly turned into two years. And that was part of the fraud of government, you know, saying, well, you know, just you just give up this essential freedom just for a few days or a few weeks while we straighten out the mess and then everything will be fine. Well, of course, that tends not to happen. Uh, I'm not totally pessimistic about it all, though, because we've had periods in our history where the, uh, the Bill of Rights was abused. And going actually back to our second president, John Adams, there was the Alien and Sedition Acts uh, because he didn't like some of the criticism he was receiving. And um, the, the courts, and there was an uproar about it, the courts uh, rather quickly ruled it was not constitutional. But you've had these um, episodes throughout our history of whether there's been attacks on various uh, parts of the uh, Constitution. I mean, freedom of religion has often been attacked. And of course, the ongoing thing to protect the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms. But uh, once people begin to understand the issue, so far we've lucked out and when they have the excess of the government, we've uh, uh, counteracted a lot of them. The biggest problem I see now <clears throat> is there is no constraint at all about the government taxing, borrowing, and spending. And this, of course, leads to tyranny also. And um, we're going to be seeing a, a big downturn in our economy. And there's not an easy way to get out of it because we now have a debt GDP ratio of more than 100%. And uh, that's just basically unsustainable. It means that each month we have to borrow more and more money just to pay the interest on the debt. And at some point, it's not an ideological thing, it's just mathematics, it rolls out of control. And people, individuals get into this kind of situation with too much credit card debt or what have you. Well, now we've got our country in a similar position. It's not only the US, but other countries, which means that you'll have higher inflation as the, the currency is basically degraded, devalued, and becomes worth less and less. Well, you know, I want to go back to a couple of points that you raised, which I think are really interesting. You know that uh, if you are a textualist and you believe in the words of the Constitution, like I do, uh, and you understand that the Constitution was really a, a contract among 13 consenting entities, and the federal government was a creation of that contract, not a party to it. And I believe, and, and a lot of us do believe, that uh, that we were given, the states were given three ways of combating overreach of federal power. You, you mentioned the Alien and Sedition Acts. Well, Jefferson's uh, reaction to that was nullification because they believed that nullification, interposition, and secession were, were three tools that they were given to say, wait a minute, uh, we don't agree to that. We are individual members of this 
contracted entity, and we don't agree with that. And yes, the courts did rule eventually, but the first shot out of the box was an attempt at nullification of the Virginia and, and Kentucky resolutions. Second point, which I think is really interesting, you brought up uh, debt, and of course you're talking about the worst year in American history probably, it was 1913. We had the 16th Amendment, 17th Amendment, and the Federal Reserve Bank. Isn't that what really is ultimately responsible for this enormous, insurmountable debt that we now find ourselves with? Yeah, I mean, it started with the Federal Reserve Act, as you pointed out, because in the uh, 1800s, um, we eventually got onto the gold standard. The British were the first ones to formally go on the gold standard. Then virtually all the other major countries of the world went on the gold standard, which made it they were very easy because you didn't have things like foreign exchange uh, differences in I mean, a bar of gold uh, in the U.S. was worth the same as a bar of gold in London or in Tokyo. Um, and we had uh, really a worldwide flowering of commerce and the first globalization in the late 1800s. Um, but they would have these, what they call periodic panics. And the Austrian School of Economics explains it by... Um, things are going well, then people become sort of speculators, too much investment in particular sectors. We see it with housing bubbles. You know, the price of houses starts to go up and everybody thinks, oh, I got to get a house or buy them and flip them before uh, while the price is rising. And that becomes self-fulfilling prophecies. And then at some point, the whole thing goes kaput. Here in Florida now, I look out, Miami, which is one of these great boom towns at the moment, but it's not sustainable. My ancestors came to Florida early on and were here in 1926 when they had the great housing crash here in Florida. So these things happen, and but they're self-correcting, and there's no need for government to do anything because within a number of months, these previous, what they used to call panics, we call them recessions, would correct themselves. We got in trouble when we thought, oh, we can do better, we can correct them. And this was part of the basis for the Federal Reserve to saying, well, you've got to ensure monetary stability and get rid of these panics and so forth. Well, of course, it's been a continuing disaster. And now it's gotten worse and worse and worse because the Federal Reserve just prints money anytime there's a downturn, but they don't withdraw when you're during boom times. And so you've got the absurdities we've had over the last few months of inflation. Well, the official number is eight and a half percent. It's actually probably higher than that. If you correctly measure the recent change in prices, probably well over 10 percent. Yet the federal government keeps interest rates on federal securities. It's something like two percent. Well, that's ludicrous because interest rates normally in a free market would be about three points. 3% higher than the rate of inflation. So typically, in normal times, you have 2% inflation, 3% uh, real rate of interest gives you a nominal rate of 5%. And we were all sort of used to that type of situation. And the economy works perfectly well with that. Um, with the gold standard, you have no inflation at all, and uh, actually a little deflation over time. The, the 
the Federal Reserve kept saying, well, they wanted to target 2% inflation. Their mandate was price stability. It didn't say 2% inflation. Uh, 2% inflation is not price stability. It means every dollar you have each year is worth 2% less. And over time, that's a real big hit. Uh, the kind of inflation we're having now, um, the value of our dollars in our pocket will be cut in half in seven years. That's an enormous tax. And that concludes another episode of Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. Join the battle on our website, www.drdansfreedomforum.com. The right to own private property that cannot be arbitrarily confiscated by the government is the moral right and constitutional basis for individual freedom. Everything gonna be all right this morning. Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is on the air. Never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is a call to arms for those American patriots who, in the tradition of our founding fathers, will stand up now to defend the Constitution and the liberties that it guarantees to each citizen, to each of us. That is our mission, to explain in a clear and concise manner the direct effect of each issue on the individual, on you personally not some anonymous being in a distant place, and to define in no uncertain terms the consequences of inaction. Let the battle begin. We are back with Dr. Richard Rann, and thank you for being a guest on Freedom Forum Radio. So you're talking about the death of government uh, currencies, which obviously... It's something that a lot of us are talking about, a lot of us fear. Uh, we're talking uh, with Dr. Uh, Richard Ron uh, about the economy, uh, and we talked about the Federal Reserve Bank. Uh, two things that, that come to mind about that uh, is, first of all, the gold standard. The gold standard obviously gives you plenty of stability, uh, and you know, I don't know if that'll ever come, probably will never come back. But one of the interesting things that I remember is that when the Federal Reserve was created in 1913, one ounce of gold would buy you a very, very well-made suit, a men's suit. Uh, and now, again, a uh, hundred years later, one ounce of gold will also buy you a very well-made men's suit. The dollars involved are obviously a whole different because it was 35 bucks back in 1913, about 1200 or $1,800 now. But that's what the gold standard and, and the use of backed currency uh, actually does. Uh, so one of the things that's kind of interesting, you know, for a long time, Rand Paul has been saying we need to audit the Fed. Would that actually do anything? Um. I agree with Brian. It's, it would uh, be useful to do, but it's not going to show a whole lot. 
I mean, I don't think the board of directors of the Fed necessarily have their hand in the till. The problem with the Fed is just bad policy. And that is, if you crank out more money than you have an increase in goods and services, you're going to have inflation. And that's what they've done. And they give this monetary illusion like people are better off and everybody knows they're not. You know, uh, one of the interesting things about printing worthless paper money is at the moment it's printed when it is spent, that that automatically decreases the value of everyone else's dollar. But, you know, to fund this whole scheme, and I guess you would you probably have to call it somewhat of a Ponzi scheme, uh, the 16th Amendment is what allowed the government to, that's the, that's the spigot that uh, allows all this to happen, isn't it? You get money uh, that the framers of the Constitution never intended for the government to get, the federal government to get. It was not constitutional to have a direct tax on the people. And they tried to put an income tax in during the Civil War, which did exist for a couple of years, but right after the Civil War, the courts ruled that was unconstitutional and they got rid of it. Um, and so they realized if they're going to have an income tax, that they had to do it through a constitutional amendment. And of course, the promise was it would be a very low rate and only hit rich people. And if I recall correctly, the top rate was something like, this is 1913, it was something like 7%, and it only hit people who were making more than 25000 at that time, which would be, let's see, uh, probably three-quarters of a million dollars today. So most people didn't pay it. In fact, there is a bit of an irony here. One reason they got popular support for the income tax is that the only people who made uh, more than $25,000 a year were New York bankers. And uh, rural Americans, farmers and things, made a small fraction of that. And they didn't much like the New York bankers. So it was a way to screw the New York bankers. But of course, within five years, it'd come back to bite them. And pretty soon, everybody was paying the income tax. So be careful what you wish for. Well, when you're talking about the government, you know as well as I do. You give them an inch, they'll take a yard. You give them a yard, they'll take a mile. And that's what's been happening for the last hundred years. Uh, they don't have any self-control on power. Uh, and that, of course, that, of course, can start a discussion of the 17th Amendment. We had some balance over majoritarianism. Uh, with the Senate, but I guess that one's now out as well since 1913. How do you see that one? Well, the, our founders, um, they understood that you needed, uh, you couldn't have parts of the government have monopoly and power. And the House of Representatives was designed to sort of reflect the will of the people at the moment and what the passions were. Well, the founders understood that if you just had all the power vested in the House of Representatives, uh, a lot of the passions of the moment would be very bad policy. And so what they did is set up a Senate, which was somewhat equivalent to the British House of Lords back then. Um, and the idea was the senators would actually represent the states 
and it was the state legislature or legislative bodies that would choose the senators. And um, you had a few scandals, um, notably one in Montana, where a very wealthy Montana uh, mining king uh, actually purchased his Senate seat by bribing many of the members of the of Montana legislature. Well, this was the big scandal at the moment. And so the pressure rose to have direct election of senators, which of course turned out to be a bad idea. In fact, many of the changes made in the constitution turned out to be bad ideas. I'm gonna digress here for a second, talking about bad ideas. Over the years, I had worked a lot in Switzerland and I'd done a lot of work around the world looking at what kinds of governments work well and what don't. And the Swiss government has actually worked, I think, better than virtually any other government in the world. Uh, they've had monetary stability, very high degree of individual freedom. They've done it because it's very difficult to pass anything new in Switzerland because most uh, issues have to go to the people in terms of a referendum. And each referendum must deal with only a single issue. You can't bundle a whole lot of issues together like the Congress typically does. And then if it passes on a referendum, it has to go to the individual cantons, which are like our states, and has to be a majority of cantons that also vote for it. Well, this is a long and cumbersome process. And I had a friend who was at one point head of the Swiss bankers, and we were talking about why Switzerland had worked so well. And he said, well, a lot of people think we Swiss are smarter than the other people. He said, we're not, but we have such a cumbersome political process. By the time we get around to doing something, other countries have always proved it to be a bad idea, so we don't bother. <laughs> well, that's that really. We should be we should be looking at that as a lesson. Well, uh, we, we do a little bit. I mean, that's the Swiss, of course, don't have socialism at all. Um, but we do have those experiments going on in, in the states. Uh, and I look at the difference between New York and Florida. Uh, my family going back a couple hundred years ago, was from New York State. A number of originally homesteaded in Western New York State in the late 1700s. And over the time they started moving to, to Florida. And uh, now most of them are in Florida, virtually nobody's left in New York State. But sort of what happened here? Um, New York State used to be known as the Empire State, it was the wealthiest state Florida was poor. And I remember even as a kid, uh, Florida was still relatively poor at that, at that point. You know, the Civil War had only been over for less than 100 years when I was a kid. And uh, the Southern states were still suffering. Florida, along with a number of other states, decided not to impose an income tax. New York put an income tax in. And of course, New York then kept raising the income tax. Florida never did that. Florida kept a very small government and um, New York, of course, just increased the government really nearly assuming there was no end to the, uh, the fountain of, uh, of, of monies and goodies. And the Florida people were just much more cautious having had 
I think a lot came from their history. And so now you have a situation. The state of Florida actually now has more people than the state of New York. Most people don't realize that. Because the state of New York, first it was the largest population state, then it was California. And then um, uh, Texas exceeded uh, New York, and New York was third. And just a couple of years ago, Florida surpassed New York. And so you've got more people in Florida than New York, but the state budget in New York is more than twice that of Florida. And yet in Florida, where I am at the moment, you look around here, um, far better services. My daughter's school teacher, schools are far better. Um, the, there's a huge amount of road construction and stuff going on with the, the population. But the whole infrastructure is so much better than New York. Things are, for the most part, quite clean. You don't see these uh, big, massive areas of poverty. Um, you drive around, right in Miami at the moment, you drive around, you don't see tent cities of homeless. And you see a very nice place. And it's pretty much true throughout the state. And you've done that, the state has done that, on half the per capita expenditure of New York. And the people tend to seem to be happier and healthier down here in Florida. And it's one reason you've had the flood of people come in. But the point is, government policy makes an enormous difference. Good policies can really result in wonderful environments, as the Swiss have proved. Bad policies can create awful places. And we've seen that. And you see how it switches over the years. Again, when I was a kid, we used to like to go to San Francisco. I was in my 20s and things. It was a great city. That was terrible. And it was all done by the politicians in California. Same thing with Los Angeles. And uh, it's, it's such a shame to take a, a great state like that and go out there and destroy it. Uh, it comes down really to having institutions and policies that restrain what government can do. And when you start to have unbridled government, people come up with all kinds of schemes. Uh, things tend not to be thought through very well. And you're always spending other people's money. And people forget that. Milton Friedman used to say to us, he said, well, if you spend $100 on yourself, you're both concerned of how much is spent and how it is spent. If you spend $100 on someone else, you're concerned about how much is spent, but actually how you spend it, you know, you're buying a present for them, you're less concerned than if you're getting it for yourself. But if you spend another somebody else's money on yourself, you don't care how much is spent, but you still care about how it's spent. But if you spend somebody else's money on someone else, you don't care either how much is spent or how it is spent. And that explains government you have all these politicians going around spending other people's money on other people so to basically buy votes. Well, that really was, was so well demonstrated. The one thing that I remember very clearly about the last election was Susan Collins. Uh, they spent uh, $190 million on her re-election. Who spends $190 million for a job that pays $175,000 a year? 
I think that pretty much says it in a nutshell that we are we are the victims of uh, politicians whose only agenda is self enrichment, uh, and they get self enrichment by selling their votes for whatever they can get for it. Um, and that's really what's happened to us. I'm, you know, corruption is is part of human nature, um, but uh, it has gotten to the point where. Uh, all these politicians are doing is spending other people's money to give themselves the lifestyle that they hope to achieve when they leave office. They go up poor, come back wealthy. And that's part of the what you're talking about. The institutions have been corrupted. They've been corrupted in favor of the politicians and against the people. So you're talking about in where you are, you're talking about different ways, different monetary systems. And one of the things we all hear about is the Great Reset. Um, what are your thoughts about that? I think that the challenge we now have is we look where the abuses are. You talk about the corruption. What things, what changes do we need to make in our system to avoid this? Now, on the monetary side, I think it's if we can give more monetary freedom where people can go out there and create their various types of their own monies and some will be shown to work very well and others not. But also we clearly need to increase uh, the number of majority requirement votes. And I've looked at a lot of constitutional amendments to try to stop the growth of government. And they're, they're all lacking in my estimation. But I think if you had uh, supermajority votes required for any type of expenditure, for any type of tax increase, for any increase in the debt, that would be much more restraining because the balance has gotten away from us. If you just have simple majorities, it's too easy to go ahead and buy off a majority. But if you say have super majorities, it becomes, becomes a lot more expensive for the corrupt uh, to have their way. Um, you know, I, I, the, um, we might want to actually put into law in the Constitution uh, more of the filibuster, not called filibuster, of course, but the supermajority requirements. So they can't be simply changed by some speeding Congress. And that, again, is a way of trying to cure the mistake of the 17th Amendment, which gave the direct election to senators. So how do you, how do you offset that particular problem? I mean, we've had amendments to the Constitution, most notably Prohibition, which didn't work and people repealed that. But it shows that we can correct mistakes. And again, the Swiss have been very good at identifying mistakes and going ahead and correcting them. And uh, I, I mentioned New York and Florida. Well, here in Florida, during the election campaigns, uh, the people are warned, you don't want to become like New York. And so a lot of the politicians here are actually more restrained, that they're not corrupt, they spend too much, but nowhere near like the New Yorkers, because there is one of the worst things you can say to the local Florida politician is uh, you're acting like a New Yorker. 
and everybody understands the disaster there. Um, we also probably ought to put in the Constitution the number of justices for the Supreme Court. We have nine justices. We've had them for more than 100 years. Uh, but that has been tradition. And there's all this talk about court packing. Of course, what would happen, Democrats, they say they had four or five justices to get a majority. At some point, the Republicans take over. Then they add another number of justices. And pretty soon, you have so many justices, it looks like the Senate. And it's not following the law and constitution. It becomes a political vote. So again, that's another constraint that we need to put in. And you sort of say, okay, our founders were brilliant putting together the Constitution, but they made a few mistakes. And of course, the uh, whole thing about slavery. Uh, but the um, but a few of these other areas, I think, can be relatively easily corrected. Um, say again with nine justices, you just take that issue off the plate. Say, this is it. It's the Constitution. We're going to have nine. If you like it or not. And um, constitutions, particularly ours, have to remember are very anti majoritarian documents. They restrict what majorities can do. They tell you, no, you can't restrict speech. You can't restrict the right of assembly. You can't restrict religion and a whole number of others. And that concludes another episode of Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. Join the battle on our website, www.drdansfreedomforum.com. The rights to own private property that cannot be arbitrarily confiscated by the government is the moral right and constitutional basis for individual freedom. Everything going to be all right this morning. <laughs>
majority and more anti-majority. Um, the problem, of course, is is that don't you feel that our judiciary, the even the Supreme Court, have really failed in upholding the Constitution as written? Isn't that a, a major problem for us? Well, yeah, but it goes back to the founding of the country. I mean, you you had the Dred Scott decision, uh, Plessy versus Ferguson, which justified, uh, you know, uh, segregation and so forth. So the court, I mean, we pick these people, but they're still just people, and they make mistakes and make wrong judgments. And the big problem was in the 1930s, they gave too much power to the federal government, particularly through administrative agencies, and uh, which undermined uh, a lot of our essential liberties. They're slowly crawling, clawing that back. And uh, there's just cases now before the court, but the last actually 20 years, the court has slowly been clawing back some of those um, things that they, uh, some of those powers they gave the federal government uh, back in the 1930s and 40s. Well, I mean, as you said, the Supreme Court is just, they're just people, and they have made some very, very bad decisions. Wickard versus Philburn is one, of course, of the same, the New Deal era. A lot of them were made during the New Deal era, um, and they were all based upon, the th- in that era, the threat from uh, FDR that he would pack the court, um, but they nevertheless were and starting, of course, with Dred Scott. There were decisions that were really terrible. But uh, now what we have in the Supreme Court is uh, really a thir- almost, almost a third legislative body uh, because in order to get on the Supreme Court, you have to be voted in by a, uh, a Senate uh, that is no longer looking for people of quality. They're looking for people of an agenda. What you say? Yeah, this whole um, with the, the recent <clears throat> hearings for the new Supreme Court justice, there was all kinds of questions I wanted to ask. You know, since I'm not a senator, I couldn't. But uh, she's been on the Harvard Board of Overseers, and there's a lot of evidence that Harvard University is discriminating against Asian students. And I would like to have somebody ask her directly, um, do you think that uh, the color of your skin ought to be a qualification or disqualification for getting into a university or other institutions? Um, and particularly that ridiculous answer she gave when <clears throat> uh, she was asked, uh, what is a woman? And she said she didn't know, yet Biden said he was picking a woman of color to be on the, and how can you rule on a number of these <clears throat> cases if you don't know what a woman is? Uh, but there's, hopefully we'll get by this. I mean, we've got, and you're never quite sure what a Supreme Court justice will do once she's on. Um, she may turn out to be uh, much better than some of us would think, but 
we often get ones that turn out to be far worse. I, I think of the notorious David Souter, who was sold to us as a constitutional conservative, and he turned out to be just the opposite. But well, then you had, had a number of them who sort of changed in midstream of what they were, and, and they've gone both ways. So, Once you hear Dr. Dan, weekends on WJRB 95.1 FM, you'll know he's right. Really, this is a nation that is built upon the concept of private property ownership. As a matter of fact, the right to own private property that cannot be arbitrarily confiscated by the government is the moral and constitutional basis for individual freedom. Catch Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum Saturday mornings at 8 a.m. and 9.30 a.m. and again Sundays at 2.30 p.m. and 7 p.m. on News Talk 95. Well, as a physician, I have extreme distrust of anyone who doesn't understand uh, what gender they are. Uh, it's a genetic thing. Uh, 99.99% of the time. But uh, it's again, how, it's, it's amazing every little three year old can figure that out. But this woman for the Supreme Court could not. Right. I mean, well, <clears throat> but again, that's another story. And that's again um, where Biden has said he wanted a, a woman of color. Uh, and that is the absolute antithesis of. Uh, of uh, what it's supposed to be. I mean, your color of your skin is not supposed to be a deciding factor for anything. Uh, yeah. And uh, and yet, uh, when they do it, it seems to be just slide by. Dr. Ron, I've you you know, I want to just ask you one thing about uh, the Great Reset. I mentioned it briefly uh, before, and that's something that is on a lot of people's mind because. Uh, the way it's portrayed, it could be a disaster for all of us here uh, in our ability to to live a lifestyle that we have. And if you combine that with a social credit score as a determining factor of what money you can have, uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I'm not quite sure what you're getting at, Dan. Um when you said a great reset, what specific thing are you referring to here? The the elimination of currency uh, in the physical sense and the going to a a system where the where the only money you have is what you have on a credit card or debit card, and the banks and the government then decide who can spend the money and who can't and how much you get. Uh, that's uh, what yeah. is. Yeah, I, the fact that money goes on credit cards and electronic, that doesn't bother me because that's just the natural evolution of technology. In terms of government allocating capital, which I think is the thing you're getting at, um, we know that the feds have gone after banks who lend to gun dealers, to oil companies and others, because this is not considered a socially desirable activity. That's terrible. <clears throat> um, where you allocate um, housing loans by, again, skin color or some other non-objective measure. Uh, those are disasters. 
that is one reason, again, I'm both pushing for and actually involved in uh, coming up with private currencies, which are really outside the control of government. One One of the most brilliant things that ever has been done is the creation of the blockchain <clears throat> because this in many ways frees us from much of this government tyranny of monitoring <clears throat> everything we do um, and enables all kinds of experimentation with money. Um, I mean, there's no reason for uh, anybody who has any kind of surplus cash or income coming in to keep it in U.S. dollars. They can buy gold or silver or foreign currencies or various assets. In my case, we're pushing aluminum on base metal, but anything is likely to hold value over time. And, um, and the beauty of the digital age, these things, uh, well, we'll, t- we'll take aluminum, um, before the digital age, because aluminum is lower value to weight, so you couldn't carry it around in your pocket, and you don't want to go to Home Depot and have sheets of aluminum in your garage. But if you can go ahead and digitize it, and it can be located all over the world, it's just the same thing as gold. We had gold because it's easy to carry around in our pocket, but in the digital age, that's no longer necessary. And there's all kinds of assets we can use, and we can use multiple assets. And with blockchains, there's no particular reason government even to know what you have and where. Um, I mean, you don't have to keep your money in the banks. You know if you do, the government's going to monitor it, which is terrible. They shouldn't do that. But they're going to. So how do you get around it? And it's, it's like what I was talking about earlier, of the various imperfections in the system, how do we get around either as free individuals or through changes in our political system to make the things better? And uh, that's the challenge, I think, before all of us. You need to take a look at each one of these things seems to have gone wrong. Well, how do we fix it? And particularly, what things can we do just individually that we couldn't in the past? And digital age and the internet and the blockchain gives lots of opportunities to uh, sort of opt out of government. And I think increasingly people will. And they are. I mean, it's just. Well, you know, that obviously is the safety factor that we're all looking for. As the government increases its tentacles into all of our lives, what we are always looking for is how do we avoid those tentacles and still live the lifestyle that we want? Yeah. It's, and so what things do you compromise with them on? <clears throat> what things don't you? And I mean, you can, you can make a lot of your activities basically invisible to government. And <clears throat> like one little thing, you look how members of Congress live, and they they spend a lot of money on themselves, but it's not their money. 
And you look at our tax code, and our tax code is riddled with all kinds of exceptions for, let's say, attending conferences. I'll just pick one thing. Well, most conferences are held in nice places. And I've noticed over the years, there are some organizations which were just basically set up to run conferences in nice places. <clears throat> so you as a physician or me as an economist, uh, somebody has a conference in, uh, let's say in Hawaii in January. And, you know, it's professional because uh, some doctor speaks or some economist speaks or whatever. And everybody goes to that. The whole thing is tax deductibles written off, usually paid by somebody else. Uh, you, you go to Capitol Hill and you can eat for free every night of the week because there's these endless receptions that are put on by lobbyists. And I've often been amused that um, there's, of course, a list of which group, American Steel Association, Amalgamated Iron, Iron Workers, or whoever is having their reception for a group of members of Congress. And there's a number of these go on every evening. And so these are very nice buffets usually. So any member of Congress can go in there and have a lot of nice food for nothing. But of course the staffers are also get this. So you have a lot of these young staffers who are actually operating in tight budgets, but they go there and they eat royally every evening by knowing where the receptions are and going to them and say, well, I'm my congressman so-and-so staff. And of course, we're glad to have you here. Come over and have all you want, all the food and drink you want. And, so, and these are all escapes from the government tyranny that are imposed by other people. So over the years, I tell people, just look how elected representatives live and do the same things they do. And the IRS won't bother you because they're all part of the game. <laughs> Well, that's the problem is they're all part of the game oh, yeah. and, and, the re and the rest of us aren't. And, yeah. and, that, and that is where the problem comes from. It is. That's, that's, I mean, the IRS should be abolished. We could get rid of the income tax. We could go to a national sales tax. I mean, you look again, the lessons are so clear. Why do we have 10 states that don't have an income tax and do very well? Again, I use Florida as a prime example here but Texas and Tennessee and others. <clears throat> and then you look at these states that have these horrendously high income taxes. Are things any better with the places they have high income taxes? No, you don't need the income taxes. You don't need them at the state level. You don't need them at the federal level. And if you were suddenly given a challenge of how you could go ahead and fund the government without income taxes, say the federal government, it wouldn't take you that long to actually figure out how to do it in a much more sane way than we do it now. But there has to be a political will to do it. Well, I've been long in favor of consumption tax. Uh, the fair tax was a, a yeah. good attempt uh, because uh, you have the choice of either paying taxes by buying more or not, or paying less by not buying as much. But the point is, is that those are consumption taxes instead of a tax on productivity. Uh, and obviously that's preferable. Well, Dr. Ron, we've had a, a really great discussion on many issues. Is there any, would you like to leave us with some thoughts about the economic future that we all should know? Actually, no, because right now 
I'm pessimistic. I'm usually an optimist, but the short term, uh, it's hard to see uh, a cheery end to uh, this rampant government spending and the inflation. Uh, virtually all these things have finally worked out through a painful recession, which I fear we're going into. And um, But over the long run, I tend to be optimistic about my fellow man and uh, uh, that we do slowly learn from our mistakes. And some wise people look around the world and say, well, if, if Switzerland and Florida and Monaco and these other places can do things perfectly well, why can't we? And that occasionally happens. Uh, some places never learn and only get worse. But, um, I think it's important to be optimistic, but realize uh, things won't come without our work. We have to do a better job in voting for the right people and explaining and the kind of work you do here with your podcast and things of just getting out there and teaching people. And <clears throat> I still feel this need. I should have been long retired, but to go out there and try to teach people good economics. Good economics. Absolutely. A goal. And hopefully it'll work for our nation because we have families below us who need to be optimistic. And uh, Dr. Richard Ron, thank you very, very much for being an incredibly great and insightful guest on Freedom Forum Radio. Thank you, sir. And that concludes another episode of Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. Join the battle on our website, www.drdansfreedomforum.com. The rights to own private property that cannot be arbitrarily confiscated by the government is the moral right and constitutional basis for individual freedom. They call them muddy waters. And people I just love to hear that old man sing. Yeah, when I play the hoochie-coochie man I get joy in everything Everything, everything Everything gonna be all right this morning Once you hear Dr. Dan, weekends on WJRB 95.1 FM, you'll know he's right. Really, this is a nation that is built upon the concept of private property ownership. As a matter of fact, the right to own private property that cannot be arbitrarily confiscated by the government is the moral and constitutional basis for individual freedom. Catch Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum Saturday mornings at 8 a.m. and 9.30 a.m. and again Sundays at 2.30 p.m. and 7 p.m. on News Talk 95.1.